Hello, and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. How was the code of DNA cracked? How did it confirm the theory of evolution? And why did life evolve the way it did? This month, Matthew Cobb and Nick Lane unravel the tangled story of DNA and look at how and why life began in the first place. I hope you're ready for a, an epic intellectual journey tonight because we're going to tackle two huge questions in biology, questions that really get to the heart of who we are and how we got here. Um, those are how the genetic code was cracked and why life evolved in the way that it did. We've got two fantastic speakers to guide us through those questions. Um, so our first speaker is Matthew Cobb. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, I don't like standing behind things, so I'm going to uh, walk around in the middle. So this is why I'm here. This is a DNA sequence. This is a DNA sequence of a particular gene in a fly, and it's what got me interested in all this. Uh, this particular gene is called dunce, because when it's mutated, the poor old fly finds it rather difficult to learn and remember things. So this is a gene associated with learning and memory, and in fact, we all have a very similar gene, and it seems perhaps to be doing rather similar things in us as well. And in 1976, this mutation was discovered. We didn't know anything about its DNA sequence. The, de the mutation was discovered, and I decided that's what I wanted to study. That's what I wanted to use. You wanted to use flies to try and understand the links between genes and behavior. Now, what I'm going to do today is to try and explain how we got here in terms of turning a mutation, this behavior, this fly that can't learn, into a set of letters, a set of A's and T's and C's and G's, how we understood what was in a gene. And we can actually date that. We can date when it actually began. And it began on Saturday, the 30th of May, 1953. And I think that is the moment when modern biology began. And it took place in a Nature article published by Watson and Crick. And it's not the Nature article you're thinking about. That was published six weeks earlier. Six weeks earlier, they published an article showing the double helix structure of DNA. And what we've got here are those A's and C's and T's and G's. And what Watson and Crick showed was that A always links with T and C always links with G. And this gives the double helix molecule of DNA its particular structure. And as they also said in their article published in April, uh, it gives it a very important function. Because, because they're complementary strands, if you unravel it, then you can copy it quite straightforward. And they have this rather coy phrase, which is very well known. It has not escaped our notice that the specific pairing we've postulated between the bases immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material. And they were pretty pleased about that. And it was the thing that Watson, in particular, had been obsessed with. How did DNA copy itself? But to be honest, that's not the most interesting thing about DNA because obviously crystals can copy themselves. They're molecules that can replicate themselves in strange ways, but they don't do anything interesting. Genes and DNA are much, much more interesting. And that was the topic of the second article that Watson and Crick wrote uh, in May 1953, an article that Jim Watson wasn't particularly interested in. He thought it was a bit kind of over the top. Crick wanted to write it, so they published it. And this is the article, The Genetical Implications of the Structure of Deoxyribonucleic Acid. And it's this sentence we've got at the end that is actually, for me, the beginning of modern biology. Their hypothesis is that the precise sequence of the bases 
is the code which carries the genetical information. Nothing like that had ever been said before. It looks quite obvious to those of you who are biologists. It makes perfect sense. Everybody knows that. Teach it at, probably teach it at GCSE. It's obvious. And yet, these two people came up with something that was not at all obvious. They took various ideas and they came up with something which was both immediately clear to people and a very radical hypothesis. So let's look at it again. It's the sequence of bases that is the code that carries the information. I'm going to look at each of those three things, sequence, code, and information, very briefly and show you where the ideas came from and how Watson and Crick put them together. And then we'll look at what came after that great breakthrough. So first thing, the idea of sequence. Until the 1940s, people were still arguing, in fact, whether genes were physical things. There were a lot of people who thought that maybe genes weren't an actual thing, they weren't a particle, perhaps they were the amount of something. So there was a lot of arguments about what exactly genes might be made of. And eventually people became increasingly convinced that they probably were made of something, and they decided that they were made almost certainly of proteins. And the reason for that was when they crystallized a particular virus, the tobacco mosaic virus, it was made of protein. And therefore, people were quite convinced that proteins, with their infinite variety, must be producing the infinite effects of uh, what uh, genes can do. And this makes sense as well, because we knew that genes are on chromosomes, and chromosomes are made of proteins, and also of this very boring stuff called DNA, which most people thought was just some kind of structural component and completely irrelevant. This man had a rather different idea. This man's Oswald Avery, and he's one of the great unsung heroes, or certainly as far as the public's concerned, unsung heroes of biology. Avery was a, a bacteriologist, and he worked on pneumonia, and he spent his entire life trying to understand uh, the difference in various virulent strains. And what he had picked up on in the 1920s was that sometimes you had two strains of, uh, two strains of bacteria, pneumonia bacteria, and they could turn from being a, a, a viral and virulent form into being uh, a quite safe and non-virulent form. He wanted to try and find out how that happened. If you put the two together on a plate, they would change from one to the other. He wanted to isolate what he called the transforming principle. And what he proved was that this transforming principle was made of DNA. And therefore, that not only he hypothesized, not only the transforming principle in bacteria, but all genes were made of DNA. And people didn't agree with this, and he was rather worried, because the problem was, with the relatively limited analytical techniques they had at the time, and the relatively few samples of DNA they had, when they looked at the structure of it, the components, they found those four bases we've had, A, C, T, and G, and they seemed to be there in basically the same numbers, same kind of levels. So it seemed, people argued, that DNA was made of these four components, and that was it. Probably it was just ACTG, ACTG. It was a tedious, very boring structural molecule. So one of the problems for Avery in getting his ideas incredibly widely accepted, a lot of people did accept them, but many people either said, well, you know, in fact, it's not really the DNA. You've got tiny amounts of protein in your samples. That's what's causing the effect. And anyway, if it is DNA, how could it do it? Because where's, where's the complexity? There is no complexity. It's boring. Now, as soon as Avery's ideas 
results were known in 1944, some people did immediately accept his ideas. These three people, Joshua Lederberg in particular, was a 19-year-old who read the paper and immediately decided this is what he wanted to do. He abandoned medicine and turned to bacterial genetics, and within 15 years, he'd won the Nobel Prize. The other two people, Masson Gulland, was a DNA uh, chemist from the UK, and André Boivin was a French scientist who replicated Avery's results on other bacteria. And in 1947, at a meeting in Cold Spring Harbor in New York, all three of them suggested, well, maybe DNA is not so boring. Maybe it's something to do with the order in which those bases are presented, A, C, T, and G. So the idea that there might be some complexity, some hidden complexity in the DNA molecule was floating around. The idea that the sequence was significant was already in the air long before Watson and Crick. Now... How did the DNA molecule get discovered? As we know, it was Watson and Crick who did this fantastic work. It's worth just spending a moment because most of you, I guess, like me, think, well, double helix, it's just a kind of shape, and all they had to do was realize it was in a complicated shape, and that was it. In fact, it was much more difficult than that because as you can see from this model, it's very, very precise. The model is exactly showing the right distances and chemical angles, molecular angles, that each of the different atomic components would have to have and that's where the structure came from. They needed those numbers that showed the exact relationship of these molecules in order to be able to build their model. And indeed, for a long time, for several weeks, the model didn't work uh, because they had the metal plates the wrong way up. And if they turned the other way up, then it suddenly makes sense. Somebody in the lab pointed out, yeah, that's the wrong way around. So they were going completely up the wrong tree because although they were very incredibly smart, they sometimes didn't quite know about experimental detail. So where did they get their data from? Where did they get those numbers from? They got them from two places. Well, the same place, really. They got them from King's College, just down the road uh, on a strand. They got them from the work of Morris Wilkins, who was a friend with, uh, of Crick. And indeed, his photo of X-ray diffraction images of DNA is what inspired Wilson, Watson to actually get involved uh, in the project in the first place and to start trying to understand the structure of DNA. And as you also know, they got their data from Rosalind Franklin. Now, these data weren't stolen, as some people suggest, and it wasn't the showing of a particular photo that made Watson's eyes bug out, although that's the way he tells the story. In fact, it's much more prosaic. Rosalind Franklin had been carrying out very careful molecular uh, studies of DNA and measuring those, providing those angles and those distances that Crick was going to use <coughs> later on. And it was published in an internal report which was circulated Eventually, a copy got to Watson and Crick, and that's how they found the numbers. But they were definitely Franklin's numbers. What's interesting about Franklin is that she was primarily interested in the technique, not in the molecule. Watson was absolutely obsessed with DNA as a phenomenon. Franklin had been previously worked on coal, and she'd been brought to King's to add special skills to their group. And for a while, she didn't really get that the structure they were looking for had to have something of the function of DNA, this ability to copy itself, but also this ability to represent vast different uh, kinds of uh, representation that could produce the different effects of genes. But what is very striking is that in the last weeks of the project, just as she was leaving, as she was kind of winding down, because she really did not get on with uh, Wilkins, and so she left to go uh, to, uh, to Birkbeck, 
she really came very, very close to cracking the problem on her own, without the two kind of popinjays and geniuses in Cambridge. She was able to nearly get there on her own. She began to realize the significance. She, too, realized that perhaps the sequence of bases was going to be very, very important, and also began to... She was about a month away from getting to the double helix herself, but she was beaten to it by Watson and Crick. So that's for sequence. What about the idea of code? Again, the idea that genes contain a code is very, very banal to most of us. And yet, before, again, the 1940s, it's very interesting, there's this con you'll see each of these words, information, code, sequence, it's the 1940s that were decisive in developing these ideas. Code, the first person to talk about a genetic, well, a code, not a genetic code, was this man, Erwin Schrodinger, who you may or may not know. There's a joke there, but sorry. Uh, <laughs> Schrodinger had to give uh, public lectures in Dublin. Yeah, he escaped from Austria when the Nazis took over, and he was given a post in Dublin, and he had to give a, a public lecture. And he decided to talk about the latest biological research. It ended up being three lectures. They were so popular that he had to repeat them, and he later went on tour around Ireland giving these lectures, explaining it to, to, to the population. And basically, he's trying to, with his physicist side, trying to understand how biology works. And there are many interesting things in the book. It's still in print, uh, the book of his lectures, well worth reading. But for our purposes, there are two things he comes up with. Firstly, just by thinking about it, if he says, well, if a, a gene is made of something, which he thinks it is, and it's almost certainly a protein, which is wrong, but still, it must be able to copy itself and it must be, have non-repetitive elements. It is what he called an aperiodic crystal. So it's a solid structure which can copy itself and which contains things that don't simply repeat themselves over and over again. There must be richness, complexity in there. The second thing he said was that it must contain what he called a code script. This is the first use of code in terms of genes. A miniature code. And it's not simply a plan, he says. It should also somehow contain the means to put it into operation. And that's what's significant about the genome. It's not a blueprint. It's not even a recipe book. It actually also contains the means to actually create itself, to actually put itself into practice. It's something much more rich than any of the kind of textual analogies which we normally use to try and explain what's in it. And Schrodinger, quite amazingly, got that at a time when many geneticists didn't do, and indeed many geneticists still really don't. Now, one thing that uh, everybody, everybody who is anybody read, uh, read Schrodinger's book and there's this delightful letter sent by Crick to uh, Schrodinger in August 1953 when he's about to pack up and go to... He's leaving Cambridge, he's going to New York, and he points out to Schrodinger that he and Watson had both read What Is Life and been inspired by it, and he sends him the two reprints, the two Nature articles, and says, we thought you'd be interested in the enclosed reprints. You will see that it looks as though your term aperiodic crystal is going to be a very apt one. And indeed... Schrodinger was absolutely right. Interestingly enough, if you say that to students today, they just look blank. If you tell them the DNA is an aperiodic crystal, it's like you're talking gobbledygook. So uh, Crick was right, Schrodinger put his finger on it, but the actual term has gone out of uh, disuse. Now, one term that Schrodinger did not use, and it's quite striking once you think about it, is that he doesn't talk about what's in a gene in terms of information. Genes contain information. This idea is completely absent from uh, Schrodinger's 
book for the very simple reason that the idea had yet to be developed. It was being developed at the same, exactly the same time. So as Avery in New York is coming up with the idea that DNA uh, is a genetic material, and Schrodinger in Dublin is coming up with the idea of a code script, there are people in America, two people who are coming up with the idea of information as an abstract concept, something you can even quantify in certain circumstances. And these two people are Claude Shannon, who wrote, uh, worked on on, on communication theory, and Norbert Wiener, who was a brilliant mathematician who was interested in control mechanisms. And they were both doing war work. Shannon was working on encryption. He also discussed with Turing about this. But they were both working on anti-aircraft guns. They were trying to build a better gun for shooting out an enemy plane out of the sky. So they, they had to work out calculations for trying to predict where the aeroplane would be and how all the soldiers who were firing the gun, spotting it, plotting the distance, firing it, how they were acting as well. And they came up with these various mathematical concepts during the war. They were published in various uh, documents. But after the war, they both wrote books. Um, Cannon, Shannon's book is still read today. It's pretty hard going unless you're a mathematician. But his calculations are used by all sorts of biologists today. Ecologists use Shannon's diversity index. I don't suppose any of them have any idea who Claude Shannon was, but his, uh, his maths is still used today by biologists to measure quantities of information. Wiener's book was a massive bestseller. Sh Shannon's book has remained merely an academic book. Wiener's book was a huge bestseller. It was a massive bestseller all over the world. The idea of cybernetics, as he called it, he coined this term. All those cyber words you use, they all come, come from Norbert Wiener, and it comes from the Greek for helmsman, for steering, because he's interested in control. And his, you can see the subtitle, Control and, the communica and Communication in the Animal and Machine. He's drawing parallels between animals, cells, machines. He even comes up with the idea that, you know what, we should be able to, if all organisms are information, then ultimately we can turn that into an electronic signal and transmit it across the ether. So Star Trek's uh, beaming down was devised, in fact, by Norbert Wiener uh, in 1948. He came up with the idea. And these books had a tremendous influence on public imagination. In 19, there were book artic popular articles published, loads of in the press, popular press and Scientific American and so on. In 1950, uh, J.Z. Young, the biologist, gave the Reith Lectures, and uh, in the third lecture, I've highlighted all the times he used the word information. So this concept, which didn't exist six years earlier, hadn't escaped into the public domain, was now being used to explain the most simple things. It was so obvious, it was such a, an excellent way of explaining what was going on in genes, but also in the way that the brain processes information. And, of course, when you start using terms like new terms arise, then there are always jokers who are going to take the mickey out of it. And this is a rather poor joke that appeared in Nature, uh, interestingly enough, the week before the Double Helix article, and it's signed by Jim Watson uh, and one of his pals, Boris Frussi, and a couple of other people, and they got all rather drunk in the Italian Alps in the summer of 1952, and decided they'd take the mickey out of those scientists like Lederberg, who were using these new terms, who were talking about information and cybernetics, and so they wrote this article letter, which is, to be honest, not funny. In fact, it's so unfunny that the editors didn't get the joke, and they published it, thinking, well, this is jolly interesting. <laughs> 
And this is the, the spoof. I mean, to be honest, yeah, you're not going to laugh at it because um, it isn't funny. But they thought it was a, a great hoot. And Watson, in his memoirs, says he was intensely embarrassed when he suddenly realized that this was actually going to be published uh, a week before the really important paper, which was on the double helix structure of the DNA. Now, uh, bacteriologists realized that this was a joke, and you can find you know, scornful references to it in the literature, and then it was forgotten until historians suddenly got excited because they could see the words information, cybernetics, and then signed by Jim Watson. Now, it doesn't show, in fact, that Watson was taking this seriously. He didn't think that bacterial information was a, or cybernetics were useful. He was wrong, uh, but this was, in fact, a, a joke. But it does signify that these terms were actually in common use, and they were part of the zeitgeist, and that's where Crick picked them up and put them uh, into his story. So having published this book, this, sorry, published this, uh, published this article in Nature in which they talked about the, the sequence being important, effectively the question then was, well, how does it work? How does DNA work? How does it do what it does, which is effectively to code? We can now use that word because it's now been put into the language. How does it code for proteins? And that's not something that Watson and Crick expected to answer. They weren't interested in it. They were going their separate ways. Crick was uh, going to Brooklyn Polytechnic on a, on a postdoc. He'd only just finished his uh, PhD. And Watson was going to Harvard to take up a post there. And they never, in fact, really worked together uh, again after this time. And they weren't expecting to do anything. And then they got a letter, a very strange letter, from this man called George Gamow. George Gamow was a cosmologist. He was a drinker. He was a joker. He was a magician. Quite force of nature, by all accounts. And he would regularly write people these very strange letters in very poor English. He was Russian origin. Uh, and he would suddenly come up with these amazing ideas. And basically, he wrote to uh, Watson and Crick saying, your article was very interesting. I've cracked the genetic code. And he came up with this idea, which was complete rubbish, absolute nonsense, because you can see here, involved actually DNA being directly the basis for the synthesis of proteins. Now, Crick knew this was rubbish because he knew that DNA was merely the basis. DNA had to be turned into RNA in ways that wasn't, weren't understood, and then the protein appeared. So Gamow's idea was completely wrong, but it made Crick sit up and take notice and think, OK, maybe we can think our way out of this problem. Maybe by just coming up with ideas, we can actually crack the problem. And they ended up creating what they call the RNA tie club. Um, and here we've got four of them. We've got Crick, and uh, this is Leslie Orgel, who's not playing the game. He hasn't got his tie on, uh, but he was a member. Uh, and this is Alex Rich, who died the other, the other week. And this is Jim Watson. And they've each got an RNA tie on. And if you were noticing, you'd have seen that uh, Gamow had his RNA tie on as well. And there were 20 members. They're all blokes. It's a very blokey thing. Most of them were mathematicians and physicists. And there were 20 of them because there are 20 naturally occurring amino acids. And if DNA is coding for proteins, then effectively it must code for each, there must be some code for each amino acid as it's kind of put together on a string, which is a remarkably perceptive idea. So there are 20 of them, and they even got their own tie pin, because they're each named after one of the amino acids. And on the tie pin, there's the three-letter abbreviation of uh, those, uh, that particular amino acid. Now, these, this, the RNA tie club never met together. All 20 of them never met together in the same room, which is probably a good idea, because it would have made the Bullingdon club look like butlins, uh, because Gamow was heavy going. This is a letter from uh, Watson, who wrote to Crick, that Gamow was here for four days, rather exhausting, as I do not live on whiskey. <laughs> and Watson wasn't a man who did, you know, he really enjoyed partying. 
So it was, it was pretty heavy going. But it wasn't all fun and games. It meant they could actually circulate information, a bit like an email list today or um, a blog where you could just come up with ideas and you didn't actually have to worry about it all necessarily being right. And so the, what they became obsessed by was what Crick called the magic number 20. And Crick said, in fact, it all took on the bit, the air of numerology. They had to get to 20. Whatever theoretical code these chaps had to come up with, the answer had to be 20, because there were 20 amino acids, so there had to be 20 things. I can't say the word some of you think I've got to say, because it hasn't been invented yet. There were 20 things, 20 units of the genetic code which could produce a particular, each one produce its own amino acid. That's what they were looking for. And they came up with loads and loads of ideas. They were all completely wrong. Absolute rubbish, virtually all of them. Brilliant, elegant, beautiful, but utterly, utterly wrong. It wasn't all wrong, however, because by doing some fairly simple maths that even I can understand, they actually came up with some fairly straightforward uh, barriers, frontiers to their problem. If you have four letters, A, C, T, and G, four bases, then if each base is a word, corresponds to an amino acid, then you can only have four amino acids, so that's no good. If you've got two bases as the unit co corresponding uh, to an amino acid, then you've got 16. Hmm, magic number 20. Okay, so we've got to have 64. We've got to have three bases, and then you end up with 64 combinations. That's okay. But then what are you going to do with the other 44? So people then got very called up in all, tied up in all sorts of complicated ways of trying to get rid of the, uh, the other 44 combinations that they didn't need to come up with a magic number 20. The other thing that this group did, which was incredibly important, which is still absolutely fundamental, is this little diagram which Francis Crick drew uh, in 1957. It's what he called the central dogma. Now, it's not a dogma, it's a very unfortunate term, it's a hypothesis. And it explains what he called the flow of information. He said something very important. He said that life involves the flow of energy, the flow of matter, and the flow of information. And I think we've probably forgotten the first part of that phrase, energy, and that's what Nick is going to be talking a lot about uh, in his talk afterwards. But those three things, flow of energy, flow of matter, and flow of information, that's what life is. And what he's saying here is that information can go from DNA to RNA to protein, but it can't get back. There's no way that we know of, and this is still true, there's no way that once the information has got into a protein, that the protein can then somehow change your DNA sequence. There's no way of that happening. And when, what Crick meant by information wasn't, wasn't Shannon's complicated equations, it was simply the order of bases corresponded, he felt, to the order of proteins, uh, amino acids. That was information. It was this sequential thing that was transferring into going from DNA into RNA into protein. So we're not dealing with maths here. We're dealing with metaphor. It's not something very, very precise you can measure. It's something abstract. It's this idea of genetic information as a metaphor for what's going on. That's really what Crick came up with, and that's the emphasis uh, that he was making here. So we've got all these clever people, clever physicists, clever mathematicians coming up with ideas. How was the code cracked? Well, not by any of them. It was cracked by two complete outsiders, two people who had nothing to do with any of the clever drinking parties or clever ideas, and that was actually significant. These people are uh, Marshall Nirenberg and Heinrich Matty. Nirenberg was an American, Matty was his German postdoc. And Nirenberg worked at the uh, National Institute of Arthritis and Metabolic Diseases. Now, 
that's very important, but it's not one of, it's not Harvard, it's not Cambridge, it's not Paris, it's not uh, Caltech. It's none of the pulsing hearts of molecular genetics in the 1950s. He was kind of off the beaten track. On the other hand, he happened to be down the corridor from some people who were making some unearthly compounds. And this was artificial RNA. RNA that was made in the laboratory with new techniques that had just been discovered. So he could actually go down the, down the corridor and borrow some of this artificial RNA. And he came up with the idea that if I can get a test tube mixture which can make proteins, so it's got all the gubbins from a cell, and I put in some artificial RNA, I can crack the code. And he came up with that idea all on his, all on his own. Now, the, the RNA he got hold of was all made of one base. He didn't know how long the molecule was. And it was all either AAAAAA or CCCCC or TTT or UUU. So in DNA and RNA have changed T and U. Uh, in RNA, you have U rather than T for reasons that I won't go into. So he had this UUUU stuff. And this was a stupid experiment because the RNA tie club folk had worked it out, because in one of their calculations, trying to get rid of those 44 complicated units that kind of messed up the number 20, they said, well, any repetitive one that just had the same letter, that wouldn't count. So everybody agreed on that. So nobody did the experiment, except for Marshall Nuremberg, and it worked. And what he showed was that what came out of his test tube was a, a protein basically made of one compound, one amino acid, phenylalanine. So with that single experiment in May 1961, he'd cracked the code. He'd shown, firstly, that you needed to do an experiment rather than just coming up with ideas, and secondly, that probably, but not definitely, probably three U's was the unit that coded for phenylalanine. So he was lucky. He happened to be in the right place at the right time. He could borrow this stuff. He was incredibly smart, and his status as an outsider actually helped him because he wasn't restricted by the ideas that the uh, RNA tie club had come up with. So he, this is all kept terribly secret. They knew it was a big deal, uh, very, very excited about it. And he goes to Moscow. Everybody who was anybody went to Moscow. Here we've got Crick, uh, Watson. I can't remember some of the other famous people in the front row as well. Moscow was the uh, Biochemical Congress in August 1961. And he gives, Nuremberg gives his talk to about... 20 people. This was, there were 5,000 people at this conference. It was immense. He gave it to about 20 people in a little hall. It must be said that the title of his talk was really boring. It wasn't, hey, folks, we cracked the genetic code. It's something really tedious. Unless you knew what he was getting at, you wouldn't have got it. And the talk's pretty dull, apart from the last few, uh, last few slides. So it made very little impression, except for one person who was in the audience, Matt Measelson, who'd been working uh, with Crick and Brenner and knew quite how amazing this was. And he went to get Crick, and he said, look, there's this guy, we've never heard of him, but he's cracked the genetic code. You've got to get him on. And Crick was in charge of the, next, uh, the plenary session the next day, which was going to have about 1,000 people at it. And here is actual his conference notes uh, for Thursday, the August 15th. And you've seen he's got here Nuremberg, and he's going to put him on here after Meselson and Weigel uh, during the discussion. He didn't go over into the coffee, I noticed, which is good. And he was therefore going to put Nuremberg on. So Nuremberg was able to get up on stage, give his talk a second time. And from the reports of people who were in the audience, those, they were either just amazed at what this man had done. And those who, wanted, who thought they could do it immediately wanted to get out of Moscow straight away, get back to the lab and start doing it. There's stories about people sending telegrams to the lab. You must start doing this. 
And indeed, by the time Nuremberg got back and in action, the competing lab uh, in New York had already started replicating and developing his experiments. Now, everything wasn't over then. There were still big problems. The size of the codon, that's the word I wasn't allowed to say because it hadn't been invented. The size of the genetic unit, how many bases, uh, hadn't yet been proved to be uh, free, as it in fact is. And Crick more or less proved that, or it was a multiple of three he was able to show, by the end of 1961. Secondly, despite that, people carried on wondering about, well, maybe it's only two codons, or it wasn't just immediately everybody jumped on the bandwagon and accepted uh, what was going on. Still a lot of work to be done, and it took finally uh, a lot of very hard biochemistry, no more clever maths and physics, just some really hardcore biochemistry that was done in the mid-1960s. And by the end of 1967, the final word had been written, uh, and that was UAG, which means stop, quite appreciatively. And this is what the uh, code means. Here we've got... Uh, the UUU, coding for phenylalanine, and here we've got uh, UAG coding for stop. Now, what Marshall uh, Nirenberg got was also a Nobel Prize in the year afterwards, in 1968, and this is a banner that they put up in his uh, lab to celebrate. Very nice. Now, throughout this time, everybody had two key assumptions. Firstly, that the genetic code was universal, that all organisms shared it, and secondly, that there'd be a one-to-one -one relationship between the DNA sequence and the amino acid sequence, that you could read off a codon, amino acid, codon, amino acid. And everybody accepted these as working hypotheses. Within 10 years, they're both shown to be untrue. So the genetic code is not strictly universal. We all have two. You've got one in your main uh, nuclear DNA, and then your mitochondria, which Nick will be speaking about, use a slightly different genetic code. Similarly, your DNA is not collinear with your proteins. Your DNA sequences are interspersed with big stretches of who knows what. There's a big argument as to whether it's junk or it's significant. But genes are, in fact, in pieces. And your DNA has to be, your RNA that's produced from your DNA has to be snipped apart and stuck together so you do get the collinearity. These exceptions, which are very irritating, uh, don't actually matter. We can explain them in terms of natural selection uh, and evolution. But it's just interesting that the basis, if people had started working with mammalian genes, which are so complicated, they'd never have got anywhere. They needed to use these very simple systems like bacteria and viruses. And they, above all, these facts do not contradict our, the key assumption, both of these people and our knowledge today, that we all share, all forms of life on Earth share a common ancestor. Now, this doesn't tell us about the origin of life. Nick's going to talk about this. The DNA code does not tell us about the origin of life because it only tells us about protein-based life like ours. And as far as we know, we suspect that before that, there was another form of life, which as far as we know, no longer exists, but who knows what lives in the ocean depths. That there was a form of life using simply RNA or maybe peptides to reproduce itself. And in this situation, there was no code because the RNA was actually doing, directly doing the enzyme, enzyme uh, reactions, was carrying out the intervention on the environment that we now use proteins to do. Why did DNA life survive and flourish and outcompete RNA life? Probably because it's much faster, and above all, because proteins are much more varied. They're infinitely varied. We can build bodies of all sorts of amazing forms with them. If we were just made of RNA or of peptides, it would be much more difficult to really build much at all.
So where did the genetic code come from? Right, well, I'll give you a very short answer, we don't know. Okay? And all the best questions in science are, we don't know. There's a lot of argument about, we don't know. But you can sense what's going on. Look at the code. Here, well, this is why it's a problem. This is why those physicists were wrong. We've got two uh, amino acids that are coded by six codons. This one, leucine, and this one, arginine. Six codons. So tremendous what we now call redundancy. They, at the time, in the 60s, called degeneracy. So the code is degenerate. There are lots of different examples that will produce you leucine. Similarly, there's one codon that codes for methionine, and it's also, if it's at the beginning of the sequence, it says start. That's kind of odd. And there's another one with just an amino acid with just one, uh, just one codon. If you look at the second, either U or C, then the final codon, sorry, U, its final position, U or C, then all codons that end in U and C code for the same thing. So that looks kind of... This is why they all went a bit mad, because you look at it and you can start to see patterns. But the patterns, what, they are, where, what the patterns really are, we don't know. And it gets worse, because all these amino acids in this part are all what are called hydrophobic. They don't like water. This group are very acidic. So it looks incredibly tempting. There must be some kind of logic or order to the code. But for the moment, we don't know what it is. Crick kind of gave up, and he said, well, it's a frozen accident. And he pointed out, above all, that the actual code could not have been predicted. It's so crazy that nobody could have come up with that. And that's telling us something very important about biology. Natural selection produces things that work, but they are often extremely inelegant. You only have to look at a human skeleton to see all the bits all over it. And they haven't, hasn't been designed by anybody. As, as, uh, as Jacob put it, evolution doesn't design, it tinkers. It gets what there is and adds to it. And this is probably why the genetic code is this mixture of rational, perhaps some kind of structural or chemical reaction explaining it. And then there's this other stuff which we can't quite explain. Biology, unlike physics or maths, is messy. And that's essentially what we have to deal with. So to summarize what we've got here is we've got, I've been talking about code and information. And these are analogies or metaphors. They're not precise mathematical ideas. And they're metaphors because organisms aren't computers or machines. And the genetic code isn't actually a code. It's simply a way that chemical reactions take place inside our cells. It's metaphor, not maths. The lessons of all this, for those of us as scientists, are stupid experiments can be vital. Unfortunately, and generally in my hands, they're just stupid. But they can be really important. Theory is important, but no matter how elegant a theory, you need a proof. You need an experimental proof of it, and experiments are uh, generally what biology uh, deals in. In terms of thinking about the future, metaphors, all our metaphors flow from technology. Currently, our highest form of uh, technology is the computer. So everything we talk about is a computer. Brain's a computer. Well, it's not. You know, cells are little mini-machine computers. Well, they're not. But that's the best we've got to try and express this very complex form. So in the future, what will happen? When we've got new forms of technology, will we re-look at what we've discovered and think, you know what, that's just wrong. The, the cells aren't computers, they are whatever, they are some other form of technology. Or will it enable us to discover new things which currently we cannot begin to try and address, like consciousness? Is there a way of new technology providing us with an insight? That's going to be decided in the future. Because the last word is this, stop. Thank you.
Well, I'm going to really start uh, where Matthew left off. Um, so this idea of information. Uh, and, and Francis Crick was... His ideas really went right to the bottom of evolutionary biology as well. So it wasn't only the code itself that he was talking about, and here again we see the, the terms information keep coming up, but this was 1958, and he said, biologists should realise that before long we shall have a subject which might be called protein taxonomy. Now, we talk about DNA rather than proteins now. The study of amino acid sequences of proteins of an organism and the comparison of them between species. It can be argued that these sequences are the most delicate expression possible of the phenotype of an organism and that vast amounts of evolutionary information may be hidden away within them. So this was its quite a well-known phrase now, but this was really the beginnings of phylogenetics as we know it. All the, 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 the gene which uh, Matthew showed at the very beginning, long, long sequences of letters... Um, we now simply compare these sequences of letters in, in, in different organisms. Now, the first person to actually do that was Linus Pauling, and again, it's, it's very striking to me. Linus Pauling, of course, was a physical chemist, Crick, a physicist by background, and these are the basic ideas underpinning really the last half century of research in evolutionary biology. So what, uh, what Linus Pauling did with Emil Zuckerkandel in 1962 was they started comparing... Uh, different proteins, the number of different amino acids in proteins from different places. So they compared hemoglobin, the beta chain of hemoglobin, the gorilla, the horse, and the human, and they found there's 20 different amino acids if you compare a horse with a human being. There's only one different amino acid if you compare the same protein in a gorilla with a human being. So <clears throat> they also introduced this idea of a molecular clock, a, a, a rate of replacement of amino acids over long periods of evolutionary time. And from fossil evidence, they figured out that horses and humans must have diverged about 160 million years ago, something like that, and therefore the rate of change was something in the order of... Uh, uh, <clears throat> there should be 10 amino acid changes over that period. So it will be around about 12 million years per amino acid that changed, or thereabouts. So this, this was the beginnings of phylogenetics. But hemoglobin, of course, is, is not conserved by everything. If you really want to try and get back to the origins of life on Earth, then you need to find proteins or genes by this time which are shared by absolutely every living thing. And the one thing which every living thing really does uh, is make proteins, as Matthew was talking about. You, you, you use the DNA as the code. You produce an RNA transcript from that, and that transcript then is used to make proteins on the ribosomes, and all life has ribosomes, and those ribosomes are made up of various, effectively, machine parts, and one of those machine parts is this. So this is the small subunit ribosomal RNA, and Carl Woese picked on that back in the late 1960s and started to compare the structures of these. So this is yeast. The human one is very similar to that. These molecules are remarkably similar right across all of life. And so what Woese did uh, was to compare these molecules, and he came up with this three domains tree of life. It's, it's in all the textbooks, and uh, it's basically it's, it's wrong, actually, and I'll explain why. Um, but it was shocking at the time, and it's still important. And now, it's, it, these are the bacteria, so we're all familiar with bacteria. Again, the archaea, uh, they look exactly the same as bacteria. You cannot tell the difference. We've actually known about some of them, methanogens, for 400 years. They were first discovered by Volta, of all people. Um, but uh, 
they look exactly the same. We had no idea that they were different. But you can see from the, the length of the branches on here, that gives an indication of the number of different uh, sequence changes between them. And so the longer the branch, the more sequence changes there are. And so it gives a sense of time and evolution and experimentation over evolutionary time. So here we are. These are the animals here, the fungi, plants, and so on. Very little variation there compared with this enormous amount of variation going on in these two other groups. So this is quite a shock. There's an entire group that nobody knew existed. And then we're consigned to a small corner of the tree, which is pretty trivial. And you know, <laughs> is that really what the world looks like? Well, people have been sequencing these genes ever since, of course, and, and this is ribosomal RNA again. Now, it's quite... <laughs> This, this is something which I think is really important in modern science. Is the amount of information in here is absolutely massive. Does it mean anything? Um, well, not a lot, actually. And the reason it... Well, you can immediately see. So animals are up here. And the, I, I can't actually read my own slides, but the plants are up there, the fungi are down here. Look at this little bit. The bacteria and the archaea are down there. They're a vanishingly small part of that tree. So already something's going on here. We're actually obsessed with animals and plants, and we sequence them all. And probably they've not included everything on here anyway. But if we go back, it's a very different picture to this. So, <clears throat> and this is one gene. Now, the question that I think there's, the big question that I'm interested in here is what on earth was happening down here? So these groups had essentially four billion years of evolution, going right back to four billion years ago, and uh, effectively infinite population sizes, and, and that's what they look like. Um, you know, what have they achieved in all of that time? Almost nothing. It's shocking. They're, they're, you know, in their biochemistry, they're amazingly complex. But in, in terms of their appearance, their structure, their morphology, they're shockingly simple. Why didn't they get any further? What was happening down here that wasn't happening over there? Why is it that Carl Woese came up in that group, but, but you know, why can't we have a bacterial human? Why, why doesn't that happen? Well... It's not only at the level of large multicellular organisms. This is really written deep into the structure of cells themselves. So this is a bog-standard alga. You'll find that in any pond, uh, Eudlina. This is a relatively complex bacterium. Um, it's even got a little compartment that some people have said, maybe that's a nucleus. It's not, but uh, this is a single-celled alga. When you get a whole lot of them, they form a scum. Um, and you don't need to know what any of these things are. This is the nucleus. These are, these are chloroplasts, in fact. But you don't need to know what any of these things are to appreciate that there's an awful lot going on and it's very big. Um, and the same goes for the number of genes. They have, you know, 3,000 families of new genes seem to have arisen with just this group. So, and they can have genes, genome sizes up to about 100,000 times larger than the largest known bacterium. So, enormously larger. And this is just to give you a sense that it's actually quite hard. This is paramecium. Again, you'll find it in ponds. And this is a human pancreatic acinar cell. It's pretty hard to tell the difference between them, certainly in terms of their overall complexity. Now, paramecium actually has 40,000 genes. It has twice as many genes as humans have. It's a large, complex organism, but it's a single cell. And so the, my point is that eukaryotes, this group of complex cells, are just enormously more complex than, than, than bacteria or archaea, something happened, and we don't really know what it is. So, there's a paradox there, and it's a paradox about natural selection itself. So, <clears throat> essentially, 
the problem is that all the complex life that we know, and that includes amoeba and, and, and paramecium and so on, is composed of this one cell type, and all those cells are essentially the same. It's very difficult to tell the difference between them. They all share a long list of you know, hundreds of, or thousands of traits in common. It only arose once. <clears throat> we all share a common ancestor, and that common ancestor, by definition, arose once. You could say, perhaps, there were lots of other origins as well, but there's no trace of it anywhere in biology. So, you know, it's make-believe. It might have happened, but there's no evidence for it. Um, we all share these traits. Prokaryotes, that means the bacteria and the archaea, they show essentially no sign of evolving any of those traits. They have, I showed you the, the, the nuclear-like compartment, that's about as good as it gets. So there are, there are steps in the direction, but really nothing very impressive in comparison to what eukaryotes do. Now, if all of those traits, if the nucleus or if sex, for example, arose step by step, as natural selection says it must, uh, and each of those steps offered some small advantage, which I'm not disputing at all, that's what happened, then why did none of them arise in bacteria or archaea? Well, we can begin to get another clue. Well, actually, let me, before I get on to that, let me just uh, give an indication of why this is really a paradox. So the eye, for example, eyes have arisen on at least 60 or 70 different occasions independently from a light-sensitive spot on some kind of an early worm. So there are some genes in common, some regulatory genes in common, but all of, they independently recruited all the rest of the genes required to make an eye. And so these, these, are, these are eye flaps on, on, on blind shrimps that live in hydrothermal vents. These are scallop eyes, fantastic things. This is an eye spot in Eudlina. Uh, so it's a single-celled alga that I showed you before. This is a trilobite. I, I won't go through the list, but they're all morphologically completely different. It's exactly what natural selection will predict. Different environments, different circumstances, you end up with different types of eye arising on multiple occasions. So why didn't that happen with sex or with the nucleus or with phagocytosis, the ability to engulf other cells? So here's the beginning of a clue. This is another tree, uh, what we would call a star tree. This is the, the common ancestor of all eukaryotes. Um, now, you might think that eukaryotes are split up into plants and animals and fungi. I'm afraid that turns out not to be true as well. This all turns out from the information of comparing all of these genomes. So here we are, the metazoans. There are the fungi. Plants are over here somewhere. These are the supergroups of eukaryotes. Have you ever heard of chromalveolates or unicons or rhizaria? Most biologists haven't either. I mean, these are, these are only evolutionary biologists care, and only people who care about the evolution of eukaryotes care about these terms. But it's a very, very striking and different portrayal to anything that uh, people had expected. And it, two things to note from this. One of them is that these branches here, there's very little variation. There was some kind of a big bang radiation very early on. And then there's far more variation within the groups than there is between the ancestors of the groups. The other thing is this black hole at the center is pretty symbolic because that common ancestor of all eukaryotes had all of these traits. It had basically everything. And we don't know where they came from. So we start out with some kind of a bacterium. Let's say it's a complex one like this. There was a recent paper that people may have heard of saying there's a group of archaea called the Lokiotiota, which are perhaps some kind of missing link, but they are not. Um, they are basically similar to this. So we start here. This is all we have evidence for, and there are no surviving evolutionary intermediates whatsoever. So there's very, very little to go on to say, well, how did the nucleus arise? Why did the nucleus arise? What about sex? What about all these things? How can we possibly get at those questions? Well, we can get at them, and again, we can get at them by looking 
uh, at gene sequences. Some genes sitting in our own nucleus are very comparable to bacterial genes. If you lay out their sequences and you compare them, so the, the ribosome genes, for example, that I mentioned, we have them, and you can compare them with bacteria. And you can compare them. It turns out that we have um, large numbers of genes that are basically quite similar to bacterial genes. And we have large numbers of genes which are basically similar to archaeal genes. We are some kind of chimera. We also have a large number of genes which don't compare at all with either of those groups, but on our basis, about 40% of our genes do compare with, with prokaryotes. The strange thing about this is, this, this is these are the groups that they are most similar to. So you take a gene, you compare the sequence, and you say, of all the bacterial genes that we have, which group is it most similar to? And it turns out to be this one, or that one, or this one. And so all this shows is all, these, all the eukaryotes, the animals, plants, fungi, and so on, we all have these bacterial genes, and we have them basically in the same way. Not, we've not been acquiring them over time from bacteria, different bacteria at different times. They all were there from the beginning. But the trouble is they come from all these different groups. So how can we interpret that? This is a problem, the kind of problem that people wrestle with, which is to say there are several possible explanations, and we don't know which one's true. This is a fact, but how do you wrestle with it. One possibility would be Lynn Margulis, her serial endosymbiosis hypothesis theory. Um, I don't like that very much, but it does make predictions. It makes predictions that it's serial for a start. You have a whole series, and actually not enough. She's got three or four of them here. People have been looking for this group for 30 or 40 years and never found a single thing from that group there. So that's why I don't like this as a, 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 as a theory very much. But it also says serial, and that means one after another, and it, they don't all arrive at the very beginning. So it doesn't really explain that. This begins to. So this is um, Ford Doolittle wrote a great article entitled Taking an Axe to the Tree of Life. He really does not like the tree of life. Um, why? Because of lateral gene transfer. So what bacteria do is they pass genes around between themselves as if it's loose change. Uh, so they pass all their genes onto the, onto the daughter cells, but then the daughter cell grabs one from here and one from there, and everything gets mixed up. And so if you try and track back a tree of life, well, maybe you end up with a mess like that. Again, it's very hard to know. It's very hard to prove what came from where. If we make a simple assumption, which is that the common ancestor of all of life had a genome which was basically similar to a modern bacterial genome, let's say it had 4,000 genes or something, then you can constrain the amount of lateral gene transfer that probably must have happened over, and, and this is the picture that you get. Um, so there is some sign of vertical inheritance, but it's a mess. Uh, I mean, just think of the, of the ribosomal RNA tree that I showed you with this rather spurious sense of precision that everything is beautifully laid out. We know exactly how everything's related to each other. We do not. Um, this gives a sense of the scale of the mess. But it also gives a sense of where the answer might be. So if this was actually a singular event, so two, one bacterium and one archaeon came together, and the reason that all those genes seem to branch with different groups is that there have been lateral gene transfer ever since between, their, between those groups, then that explains it. This then is a hypothesis, which is testable in principle at least. It was a singular event. It wasn't multiple endosymbioses. It, it wasn't something happening over time. It was just once and right there. And actually, there's a lot of evidence behind that now, and I'm not going to go into it today. But it's what Jim Lake called the ring of life. And I'm told he sent a paper to Nature entitled, One Ring to Rule Them All. And, uh, 
unfortunately. Well, they accepted the paper, but not the title, sadly. <laughs> anyway, so this is Jim Lake. This is his ring of life. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of evidence now that uh, there was the, the host cell was an archaeon um, from, 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 from the archaea, <clears throat> and there was an endosymbiont, so a cell that got inside it, uh, and that cell went on to become the mitochondria. So we all have mitochondria, the powerhouses of eukaryotic cells. So it must have been something a little bit like this. So this is the one example that we know of today of a bacterial cell. This is actually a cyanobacterium, and you can see there's some membranes in there. These are thylakoid membranes in cyanobacteria with cells living inside them. We have no idea how they got in there. They weren't engulfed by phagocytosis because this is not a phagocyte. It has a cell wall. But they're there, all right. We just don't know how they got there. Um, but this is the starting point, then, for, for the evolution of complex life, if any of this is true, which it might not be. So they went on, I'm suggesting, to become mitochondria. This was the discovery of mitochondria by Richard Altman um, back in 1895, and he, he used an osmium uh, stain which actually dissolved the cytoplasm pretty much, leaving just the mitochondria and the nucleus. He thought the nucleus was a food dump, and that th these were the elementary organisms, what he called bioblasts. Um, and so he, he had a great job title, Extraordinary Professor of Anatomy. <laughs> Love to get a job title like that one day. Anyway, but what we know now is that, um, is that these mitochondria were bacteria once. And they're amazingly successful if you think we have something in the order of 500 trillion mitochondria in our own bodies. So, I mean, you'll hear it said that, you know, we are we're only one-tenth one human, that there's ten times as many bacteria in the microbiome. Well, there's at least 500 times as many bacteria as mitochondria living in us. We are basically 40%. Um, mitochondrial. And this is what's going on in you right now. So these are, these are, these are mitochondria, uh, and these membranes is where respiration is taking place. So as, we, um, as we're burning food in oxygen, it's all going on in these membranes inside these mitochondria, which were once bacteria. And this is roughly what's going on. So in a, in a nutshell, we're stripping electrons from food, hydrogen really from food, the electrons are flowing down this wire of proteins. So there's a current of electrons to oxygen. So we're stripping them from food. And the, the protons, so hydrogen is made up of electrons and protons, the protons are pumped across the membrane. So the flow of electrons, the current of electrons flowing to oxygen uh, extrudes the protons across the membrane. And we end up with something which is a little bit like a hydroelectric dam. So we've got a reservoir of protons on one side uh, and very few protons on the other side. And then we have a flow of protons through the ATP synthase, and that produces what's called the, the universal energy currency, ATP. So it's, it's a very peculiar way of going about things. Nobody guessed that that was how life was going to work. Now, those little blobs that I showed as the current of electrons, actually, they're amazingly complicated proteins. It's been uh, a triumph of, uh, of, of research over the last 30 or 40, 50 years to work out the exact structure down to the, practically the scale of atoms now of, well, this is the ATP synthase. Uh, the, the, these are the respiratory complexes that are pumping protons across the membrane. So we know in enormous detail how these things work. There's still some mysteries. There's still people actively working on it. But we, we know an awful lot. What we don't know is why life works that way. That was the problem that, that Peter Mitchell, who came up with this idea in the first place, it was what motivated him. Why, you know, how does, not how does respiration work, actually, but how do bacteria keep their outsides different to their insides? It's one of these very simple 
very deep questions. How do they keep different to the outside world? And if you can keep different to the outside world, he realized that, well, stuff can flow in again and you can take advantage of that. And so the flux of things into cells give you a, a source of energy. So this is Peter Mitchell and Jennifer Moyle. So Jennifer Moyle did all the experiments. Peter Mitchell did all the thinking. He got the Nobel Prize. She didn't. Um, we can debate the, the pros and cons of that later on, but uh, basically it was her experiments that proved it, um, but it was Mitchell who really conceived the ideas. Who's to say what's most important in science? Um, why? I'm not going to talk... Uh, there have been several leads to say I'm going to talk about the origin of life. I'm afraid I'm not. You're going to have to read my book. <laughs> I'm just going to say a word or two about it. Um, how did these things start? They're universal across all of life. I, I failed to, to, to quote this lovely quote from Leslie Orgel. Not since Darwin has biology come up with an idea as counterintuitive as those of, say, Einstein, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger. The physicists are creeping back in again here. But, you know, physicists are full of big counterintuitive ideas. There aren't very many in biology. The, 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 the double helix is an entirely intuitive idea. Jim Watson said, you know, it was so pretty it had to be true. You know, but, but the idea of pumping protons across a membrane, it's so ugly that you think, why on earth does it work like that? And nobody can ever remember the term chemiosmotic coupling. So, um, the problem is that these proton gradients, they're as universal as the genetic code. Now, I'm actually, there's a sleight of hand in there because Matthew said that the genetic code is not actually quite universal, and it's also true that proton gradients are not quite universal either, but they're more or less universal, and the groups that don't use them are obviously relatively recently derived and live in fairly peculiar conditions. So, to, in a broad brushstroke, they are universal. And that implies they arose really early, and that means that we need to think about what kind of an environment it gives a pointer to what kind of an environment life might have arisen in. And I, I, I'm going to skip over this very quickly. These kind of vents, which were discovered only 15 years ago, called alkaline hydrothermal vents, uh, down at the bottom of the Atlantic, seems that they're probably far more common, or would have been far more common uh, four billion years ago. Mike Russell, who put these ideas forward over the last 20 years or more, has argued that they're electrochemical flow reactors. So it's not, it's not like a black smoke, a belching smoke out of the top. It's a labyrinth of pores, and the, the, the hydrothermal fluids wend their way through these pores. So the important point for us is that they have natural proton gradients. These are alkaline fluids going into what would have been a mildly acidic ocean. And so the inside has very few protons, the outside has lots of protons. And they would have been across these barriers in this microporous labyrinth. And so this is the situation that we have in these vents. We've got large concentrations of protons on the outside, low concentrations on the inside, and some kind of thin inorganic barrier between the two. This is what's going on in all of life. So this is a bacterium or something. It's the same thing. It's pumping protons out. It's actively pumping them out. This is a thin membrane. This is orders of magnitude thinner than that. So I'm just exaggerating the, the, the analogy here. But it's about the same order, which is to say it's about three or four pH units different between here and there. Now, there's all kinds of reasons that... Uh, that the question is really... What use is that without proteins, without membranes? Without, I, I do discuss that in the book, and I'm not going to talk about it now. But for the last minute or two, a few minutes, um, I want to suggest that the problem with this is that they are constrained by pumping across their membrane. 
This is how life started. Bacteria, archaea, all do that in that way. And then they're kind of stuck with it. So what was the good thing about having this situation at the origin of eukaryotes, where you have an endosymbiont? This goes on to become the mitochondria. Um, well, the thing is that these are cells. It's not just a cell, it's a population of cells, and they can compete among themselves. And when they do so, very often, if you can make more copies of yourself in a given period of time, you will be better represented down, down in history. And so if you get rid of a few genes that you don't need, for example, you make more copies of yourself in a shorter period of time. And so the competition between these cells in this population living within a cell, they tend to dump any genes that they don't need and become simpler and rely on the host cell for anything that they, they can do. And in the end, they lost almost all of their genes. We only have uh, 38 of them left in our own mitochondria. Well, there are massive, massive energetic consequences of losing those genes. So just as a quick and slightly silly thought experiment. Imagine that you've got a cell and it's got 100 endosymbionts, so it's got 100 bacteria living inside it. And let's say that it has a standard bacterial genome, so it's got something like 4,000 genes, 4 megabases, 4,000 genes. It loses 5% of them. So these are the genes it normally would use for making a cell wall to protect itself. It doesn't need that anymore, and they replicate a bit faster if they lose those genes. So it's lost 5% of its genes. So what's, what's the energy savings that you get from losing those genes from 100 endosymbionts? Well, each of those genes encodes a protein, and those proteins are uh, produced in multiple copies. You, you don't just make one protein, you make thousands of them. On average, in a bacterium, about 2,000 of them. And each protein is a string of amino acids which are all linked together. On average, 250 amino acids linked together in a protein. And it costs you about five ATPs to, make, to bind the two amino acids together. So you can work out the cost in ATPs, this energy currency, um, that you would have to pay to build all of those proteins? Well, the answer is the cost is something in the order of 50 billion ATPs. If we assume a 24-hour life cycle, that works out at 580,000 per second. So that's what you would save by not expressing those genes in those 100 endosymbionts. What could you spend it on? Well, let's say, let's have a, let's have a dynamic cytoskeleton, something that will allow you to move around. What does that actually cost? There's no reason why you should spend it on that, but you could spend it on that, so what would it cost? Well, the length of the uh, actin this is made of a filament, but the filament is lots of proteins joined together. They're kind of gummed together. And each of those monomers is 29 nanometers in length. Uh, so there's th the 35... Uh, monomers per micron, so that's 35 proteins joined together per, per micron. Um, there's 374 amino acids in each protein. It's a dimer, and again, we're assuming 5 ATPs per peptide bond. So the total cost is 131,000 ATPs to make one micron of actin, which means for those savings, you could make four microns a second, which is you know, a, a massive amount. That's way more than any bacterium actually does, and that's de novo synthesis starting from the start. So it really is a, it's a huge difference. Now, mitochondria didn't lose 5% of their genes. They lost 99% of their genes, and they're not limited to 100 in a cell. There can be as many as 300,000 in a large amoeba. And so the actual energetic advantage that eukaryotes have as a result of gene loss in their endosymbionts which have always retained a few to keep control over respiration. It's absolutely huge, and I think that's what made that difference. I mean, we can quantify that. These are various different types of bacteria, including giant bacteria, 
there are some giant bacteria which are, which are visible to the naked eye. They're still only half a millimeter long, but you know, that's pretty big for a bacterium. They have uh, what's called extreme polyploidy, thousands of copies of their genome. If you take all of that into consideration, these are various numbers for bacteria. This is the metabolic rate, so the power that they have uh, per gene. And these are eukaryotes. This is a log scale, so this is three or four orders of magnitude more energy per gene. That, that, uh, this is uh, Eudlina again, which I was showing you earlier on. This is an, a large amoeba. So orders of magnitude more energy to do what you want with, with your genome, to make that many more proteins or to have that many more genes. So just for the last bit then, um, coming back to this, can we get any insight into what was going on down here? Well, possibly, because if this, if this is just a simple, a complex bacterium, but it didn't evolve by natural selection in a large population, what actually started out is something more like that, then we can begin to constrain what was going on. And we've been doing some population genetics uh, on this in, in the department, Zina Hadjivasilou, just finished a PhD about a year ago working on this. I'm not going to talk about that now, but you can see immediately just looking at this that if you have a population of mitochondria within a cell, they differ. They mutate in different ways. They can become different. They segregate in different ways. Uh, and it, it takes quite a lot of work to try and figure out how do, you, how do the organisms constrain what's going on here. In fact, the mechanisms are almost certainly things like having two sexes, having sex at all, having a germline. All of these can be shown that they actually improve the quality of mitochondria. So I'm not going to say more about that. Again, if you're interested, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> um, but right up to the, you know, the, the Cambrian explosion and the origin of animals and germlines and so on, it's, it's all potentially explicable. As always with science, these are neat ideas. They may not be true, they may be complete rubbish, but at least we can test them, or we can try and find ways of testing them. So, a few conclusions. Complex cells, the eukaryotic cell, arose just once in four billion years. That seems to be a fact. I can say more about that if people are interested. Um, it looks as if energy constraints on bacteria uh, demand some kind of a rare endosymbiosis between prokaryotes. Um, Conflict, then, between the endosymbionts, between the cells living inside a host cell, that's pretty tough, and it forces cells down particular populations of cells, down particular avenues. It forces you to have sex, for example, or to have two sexes. And so we can begin to predict that the resolution to those, those uh, conflicts uh, may account for why all eukaryotes share so many similar traits. Now, I want to leave you with this. So, <clears throat> this was discovered... In case you think it's pessimistic that uh, life only, a complex life only arose once in four billion years, maybe it's happening again off the coast of Japan. Um, so this was discovered about five years ago, and it's an intriguing title of the paper, A Unique Organism from the Deep Sea, um, Prokaryote or Eukaryote. They don't know. I don't know. Nobody really knows. But let's have a quick look at it. So it's about 10 microns long, which is substantially larger, these are bacteria here, so it's substantially larger than the average bacterium. It has what looks like a nucleus, so this looks like a standard eukaryotic nucleus. It's got some endosymbionts, perhaps they're not mitochondria, but they could be something like hydrogenosomes, which are derived from mitochondria. Um, it's got a plasma membrane and a cell wall and so on. So to a first glance, this looks like a standard eukaryote. But when you look more closely, well, this is not a double membrane, all eukaryotes have a double membrane around the nucleus. This has a single membrane around the nucleus. 
All eukaryotes have chromosomes with a diameter of around about 30 nanometers. This has bacterial filaments with a diameter of 2 uh, nanometers. Um, we don't know what, what those are. There's no genome sequence for this. We really don't know very much. These, this mottling here, those are ribosomes. No eukaryotic cell that we know of has ribosomes in the nucleus. The whole point of the nucleus is to exclude protein synthesis from going on there, but here it's going on in the nucleus, as well as outside the nucleus. Um, these membranes inside the cell, they are nothing like the membranes that we see, the endoplasmic reticulum, things like that. So this is not a eukaryote, and is not a prokaryote. I would say that what this is, is a bacterium that acquired endosymbionts and which is recapitulating eukaryotic evolution. It's become larger, it's accumulating genes, um, it's got a nucleus, it's going through the whole thing all over again. But we only ever found one of them and they've been looking for 15 years to try and find another one and uh, they've not found it yet. So, <laughs> And they sectioned, they took a section of that which means we don't have a genome sequence either. So this is how science goes, we're just going to have to wait and you are as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. So it's been so enjoyable reading your books and also hearing about them back to back and having those two perspectives on life, the one focused on information as being so important for life and one um, focused on energy. Um, I've got a couple of quick questions for you. I'm going to be selfish and ask you my questions and then open it out. Um, so, Nick, I wanted to ask you, um, once you have this perspective of energy use and mitochondria as being key for what allowed simple bacterial cells to mm -hmm. become more complex. Um, is that just telling us about life as we know it, if you like, or are these principles that then apply to life elsewhere? Can we start making predictions about what we might expect to see elsewhere in the universe? Uh, yes, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's, it's actually a theme of the book as well, because we don't know, again, is the, is the simple answer. Um, but I suppose the question for me is these proton gradients across the membranes, why do they actually exist? Is it a fluke that life started in an event which happened to have them, or is there some, is there some more profound reason why? And I think, I think it's a matter of probabilities. So there are common geological conditions, one called serpentinization. It's basically a reaction between rock and water. And, and, and uh, the rock is olivine, uh, which is a very, very common mineral, which you find at, you know, it's ubiquitous in interstellar space. Um, and a, this reaction between the rock and the water produces alkaline fluids and hydrogen gas. So these kind of vents should be everywhere across the universe. We already know of three or four moons or planets within the solar system where there's good evidence that serpentinization, this process, is going on. But they produce hydrogen. And... Carbon dioxide, basically all life here uses hydrogen and carbon dioxide. It gets the hydrogen, sometimes that's hydrogen bubbling out of the ground, sometimes it takes it from water or from hydrogen sulfide or other places, but um, it's always hydrogen, it's always CO2. And so again, you think, well, why? Well, it's partly because CO2 is just very common and it's a gas and it's like a Lego brick. You just fish out a Lego brick and you build it on. You can't do that with silica, for example. It's sand, it's an enormous thing at a molecular scale. So. These are really ubiquitous, and, and I think you'll get repeating conditions everywhere. But the problem is that hydrogen and CO2 won't react together. We've been trying to make them react in the lab, and lots of people have been trying to make them react in the lab, and they just don't react. 
And theoretically they should. And the reason theoretically they should, because I think that proton gradients will make them react. I think that the, the, the difference in acidity changes technically the reduction potential, but basically it changes their reactivity with each other. And so if you have hydrogen in alkaline conditions and CO2 in acid conditions, they should react. And if we can show that that's the case, then I think we've shown the first step, and then the probability argument begins to take over because that's the most likely set of conditions. But you've already roped in proton gradients, and so maybe life would be very similar elsewhere. And once it's started, I suppose you would then expect to see all of these other uh, characteristics coming in, like the two sexes yes. and yes, death exactly. and all of this. I don't know if people find that depressing or, or, or what. I mean, I find it quite thrilling, actually. But, you know, there, there's, no, there's no constraints on, on, on life as we know it on this planet beyond, you know, you're not, an elephant's not going to fly. So these are, these are kind of deeper constraints about having two sexes and things like that. So, yes, I would expect that if we do come across aliens and they are complex, that they would have mitochondria, they would have sex, they would have two sexes, they would do all the same stuff. But probably in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um... And then I guess, so both of you in both of the books, they're, they're looking back. They're, they're both different kinds of history. Um, and yours is a much more sort of human story of um, how the genetic code was cracked. And I just wondered, um, what is it that, because you've written a lot of history books, what draws you to history? And, and in particular in this story, what does that tell us about now, if you like? What does that kind of insight about how that that understanding was reached, tell us about where we might go with genetics. Well, I think it's what I was dealing with at the end. It's about the role of <clears throat> metaphor and analogy and the way that ideas filter in from other parts of science or culture without you really noticing where they're coming from. And that's what I was, I was really trying to get at. It's almost a cultural history, in a way, of these key ideas that look so obvious and trying to see behind them and see where they came from and discovering all this work on anti-aircraft guns. And there's a lot more about cybernetics in the book because it relates to uh, the way that genes actually function. So one of the main, thing, main themes we know now about genes is that there are at least two broadly said types. There are structural genes that make proteins and then there are uh, gene, regulatory genes that will control other genes. And that idea was, was came, up, came, came up with by uh, Jacob and Mono as part of what they called enzyme cybernetics. So that crazy joke that Watson and Afrusi were making in 1952 uh, uh, actually was turned into reality within 10 years. People were using these ideas about feedback loops and feedback mechanisms to apply them to what was going on in tiny, tiny cells. What's interesting is that cybernetics as a, as a field has actually kind of disappeared, apart from in Germany, where it's very, very strong. People like cybernetics in German neurobiology labs. But even in neuroscience, which is where you'd think it would be very strong, it's kind of disappeared as a phenomenon. There's a, there's a history book, which I'm not going to write, but somebody should be writing about the, the post-kind the post of 60s history of, of cybernetics. Well, I like this idea that the, the, the thought that... DNA was a mathematical code, if you like, actually sort of perhaps delayed them being able to crack the code because people thought that it was going to be logical and efficient yeah. and they, that they could be solved just by thinking about it, whereas actually well, yeah, that I mean, wasn't the case. I, mean, I, I was being a bit rude about the physicists. I could also be rude about the biochemists because they assumed that everything would be neat and they didn't understand natural selection. I think Nick is the only professor of evolutionary biochemistry in, in the world, probably. No, no. <laughs> but you're a very rare beast. Um, so, but realising the complexity of things and the messiness of it is... And in a way, it doesn't actually help you, because if you start off thinking it's messy, 
you're not going to get anywhere. So they had to have this very pure reductionist idea. Without that, they would have been lost. If they'd started doing the complicated stuff, they would never have found the answer. They would never have understood what was going off. They'd been studying humans or, or mice or even flies. They had to use things like bacteria. I mean, but it's quite amazing how long the proofs took. I remember being quite shocked when I was a first-year student reading, uh, in fact, J.Z. Young's book about uh, an introduction to the study of man, and I was reading all about this stuff. And then I noticed that all the references were to papers about bacteria, and that, in fact, there was no proof when I was studying this in 1975-76 that DNA, no absolute proof, that DNA was the hereditary material in anything other than bacteria. It took another couple of years, and they were able to prove that in Drosophila. I mean, everybody assumed it was the case, but the actual strict proof hadn't yet come about. And that's the power of reductionism, in fact, the power of using very simple model systems. And are we being constrained now by the concept of information? Because you say in your book that we've very forgotten about energy or um, not paid it yes, attention. Yes, I mean, it's not, I'm not trying to be critical of information because you, you'll have noticed most of my talk was actually about gene trees. It's all based on information. Um, but I think we, we can be very complacent and, and, and show a beautiful tree of ribosomal RNA or something and give the impression that we know all the answers. Um, and, and what I hope I've, I, I've, I've achieved is, is muddy the waters somewhat and show that you know, different genes give different trees. And, and the interpretation, uh, you can interpret all these things in so many different ways that the, the information is very, very muddy. And again, we're back to experiments in the end. The only way we can understand this is you try to theoretically grapple with it and come up with a coherent set of ideas, but they may just be beautiful ideas that are dead wrong. And, and, and until we do experiments on it, and that's one of the reasons why I try and, it's not that I'm trying to knock information, is that people have put aside those other questions and, uh, and assume that information will answer everything. Well, it, it doesn't. There are other constraints, there are other factors, and information is hugely important. Of course it is, but um, you know, it's constrained by things too, and it doesn't account for this weird evolutionary trajectory of the history of life on Earth. Okay, well, we'd better open it out to the audience. So, do I have some questions? Okay, um, second row here, black T-shirt. Just wait for the microphone, would you? Yeah, go for it, yeah. Uh, I was asking, uh, what you showed earlier, um, the only current known symbionts, what is, the, um, what is the symbiotic relationship the two organisms have that allows them to be symbionts? And uh, symbionts we don't know. Um, I mean, t today we know what it is, and there are, between other eukaryotic cells, there are hundreds of known cases of bacteria living inside eukaryotic cells. There's only that one known case of a bacterium living inside another bacterium. There are actually a couple of others, but they're too weird to talk about. Um, and we, you know, that was discovered in 1978 by a guy who retired some years ago. I emailed him to try and find out, you know, where was it? Can I go? Can I see these things? Can we sequence them now? Uh, and he said, yeah, uh, well, the thing is that I've retired and my lab's, uh, my lab's got asbestos in it and they're just about to clear it out. So I'm off on holiday for three months, so now, so I'll email you when I get back. And, and he, he never did. And I tried emailing him a few times after that and he's never got back to me. Um, so... I'll find that stream one day, uh, <laughs> and we'll try and work out what was going on there. We, can, we, you know, we, have, we have hypotheses, but there's no proof of any of it. Um, Adam, while the microphone's there. Um, hi, you're both brilliant. That was, they were both absolutely excellent lectures. My question is kind of for both of you, in fact, that um, I, I find it slightly annoying that, and I know you do, Nick, that, that Peter Mitchell's work is, is not better known and that chemiosmosis 
Just remember that, everyone. Chemiosmosis is, is you know, this, this fundamental property of all life that underlies everything else that, that happens. We know that Francis Crick and Leslie Orgel, were, who were members of the RNA tie club, were, became interested in the origin of life. Were they aware of Pete Mitchell's work? Where was, why, why were they not more interested in the origin of life and, and, and this, this process of chemiosmosis? Oh, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. All I know about what uh, Crick and Orgel wrote about the origin of life is that it made me wonder what they were getting up to in California, because Crick moved to California. <laughs> because basically they came up with the, the hypothesis, very, very serious, that life came to Earth in the nose cone of a spaceship from uh, a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> and it is, it is I mean, they, it, this yeah. is absolutely serious in the... In the Orgel took it as a joke. They wrote a paper together, but Crick wrote a book called Life Itself where he takes it very Absolutely. seriously and it derives from his idea of the code being a frozen accident yeah. and the consequences of that. It's actually quite a serious book. No, it, it, um, might, it but, might be true. But, you know, uh, it's, it's not mad. much of a testable hypothesis, to be honest. Why, why didn't they take other ideas seriously? I think the thing is that it's, it's this information obsession again because yeah. it depends. How do you define life? Well, we don't have a definition for life, so let's say... Well, it's the start of Darwinian evolution. Well, that's the start of replication, the start of information. Uh, and people don't worry themselves about where did all the building blocks come from because that's pre-life. So if we want to understand the origin of life, then it's the origin of RNA, the origin of DNA, and the origin of natural selection and, and, and replication and evolution. So you define life that way and you automatically don't worry yourself about where did all the nucleotides come from. If you're a chemist, you're interested in how do you get the nucleotides, but you may not be interested in the biology or you may not be interested in the geology, you're interested in the chemistry. And so there's all these different fields that, that don't... I mean, they do talk to each other now, but there's been a long history of not talking, or when you do talk, of being extremely rude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The other thing, of course, is Crick decided that the, his, the origin of life was not really difficult enough, so he decided to try and crack consciousness, which he didn't. <laughs> yes. um, maybe he would have been better off actually sticking to what he know, knew rather than trying to <laughs> branch out. Okay, who else have we got? Um, Craig Venter's gone off and um, sequenced all across the oceans and also he's tried designing his own um, genomes to work. And uh, slightly the, the earlier question about um, uh, how there might be different forms of DNA or different forms of life, that, do you think that Craig Venter's work is going to suddenly open up something new? Well, what Craig Venter did was to... It, it was I an mean, incredibly complicated and a great technical feat, but he didn't actually create a new genome. What he did was to get a genome from one species, completely resequence it and create the new DNA, and in so doing, he also put in uh, his name, he put in lots of other information in there. They put in a, a quote from James Joyce, which the Joyce estate decided to sue them over. They weren't allowed to copy that. Um, and also an actual uh, an email address, and if you could crack the, the kind of extra code they put in there, you could send an email. Some bright spark did it within three hours of the sequence actually being put it online. So what he did was to basically copy, it sounds kind of simple, but it wasn't, copy one species of uh, DNA, bacterium's DNA and then put it in the, not empty, but DNA-less cell of another species and then kickstart it and get it work. Now, that was fantastic, but he, what, he didn't create new life. Basically, what he did was to use the stuff that was already in there, all the gubbins from the cell, all the ribosomes and the rest of it and all the, all the enzymes, and then DNA he, he put in. Now... 
people are already at this very moment making what's called XNA. So they're making DNA that's composed of other different uh, nucleotides. They are putting in extra words into the genetic code, and they're getting those, they're, at the moment, those extra words don't code for anything else, but people are also trying to introduce new nucleotide, new bases into proteins. So you're going to, it's quite conceivable that within the next 50 years or less, you will have somebody will make an XNA-based life form that is using non-DNA codes to produce new alien proteins. And that's both very exciting and quite scary because one of the ways that our, cell, our bodies respond to infection is by recognising it because they recognise what it's made of and how it's reproducing. And if it's not using the normal stuff, then that could be very dangerous. On the other hand, it might be fantastic if you want to make Mars a nice place. If it's got no life on it and you want to terraform it, you might be able to create life forms that could produce vast quantities of oxygen uh, and actually make the planet hospitable. But that's, that is science fiction. But it, it's possible, I think. I'm told that George Church, who's a synthetic yeah. biologist, is trying to construct a cell made. So amino acids can be either left-handed or right-handed, and same, same with sugars, but all life uses one hand rather than the other hand. And I can never remember which one's which, which is why I'm not saying it's... it's yeah. but, uh, but George Church is doing it the other way around, trying to laboriously construct a ribosome from, from, from the left-handed or the right-handed amino acids, whichever one it is, um, uh, uh, to, to, to build proteins having been fed again specifically with that one, to come up with effectively a mirror image of a cell which other cells would leave alone because they would not recognise it, in effect. It's a peculiar idea... Extremely laborious. I'm told he's got about 200 people in his lab working on this. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's a great thing to do, actually. Why not? But uh, I'm not sure well, what it would be useful get out. for. I don't know how he justified that as a, as, as societal impact or something. Well, it but, could have a terrifying <laughs> impact, I think. Yes. Well, I guess you could use some, a drug that would kill those that wouldn't affect yes, other lives. You, of, you know, yeah. you could control it in that Potentially, way. People yes. have been doing this, and they're, what they're trying to do, and Church is one of the people, is you've been putting in kind of fail-safe devices so that it needs an extra non-natural amino acid to survive, and if it hasn't got that, the cell will die. So if it were to get out, it would die. But I think there's a very famous phrase, what is it? Life will find a way. I'm not sure it's a very Evolution thing is to do. cleverer than you are, <laughs> yes, and it always is. Um, okay, I think it is after half past eight, actually, so that the... Um, we'll do it really, really quickly, if that's okay. Um, I was just going to ask about um, in the eukaryotes, when do you like when you start getting multicellular life, sort of when it divides and doesn't break away but sticks together? Uh, how does that start to happen? And does do, are any genes swapped after you have that point? Good question. Uh, th there was a long gap, which we don't understand at all. So eukaryotes has these large complex cells. We think they arose between one and a half and two billion years ago. And animals arose before the Cambrian explosion, but not that long before. So that's 500 to 600 million years ago. And so there's nearly a billion years gap there. It's actually called the boring billion. Geologists call it the boring billion. Um, uh, and it, it finishes up with, with some very dramatic... Snowball Earths, for example, the entire planet was, became you know, glaciers on the tropics. Um, and then immediately after that was the Cambrian explosion. Oxygen levels went up at that kind of time as well. We don't really have a very good handle on how these things related to each other, but they do seem to in time, at least. So... <clears throat> 
my feeling is that when the conditions changed in a way that that allowed, you know, there's more oxygen, so larger organisms can become more active and so on, only certain life forms could take advantage of that. Bacteria never did. They were there at the same time as well, but they just went right on being bacterial. Eukaryotes arose to become animals, plants soon afterwards. But even animals, you know, they only arose once. This is still pretty... You know, it doesn't happen regularly. It's not as if we have five or six different groups of animals all ar arising in the Cambrian explosion. We're all related to other animals. Um, and so they arose once as well. And there's something about the conditions, but there's also something about the difficulty of gene regulation and interactions between cells and, 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 and how all that multicellular level of organization works. It's a difficult thing to evolve. Uh, and it probably requires a window and the opportunity, but then it doesn't necessarily happen straight away. Okay, I'm really sorry. I think we're going to have to finish there because um, we have run over time. But um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have. Thank you to both of our speakers. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>